Numbers is the book we're in. It's the fourth book of the Bible. We've been following this thread of the story of God. And we, the story of God, not Moses, not anybody else, the story of God. And we've been, we started at the beginning at creation. God made everything uh, good. And then he made Adam and Eve. Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. Uh, rebellion entered the world. Uh, death entered the world. All of those things entered the world because Adam uh, chose for himself to rule instead of God. In essence, I make the decisions on what's good and what's bad. And as a result, here we are. So, but God, being awesome and graceful and merciful, said he would provide a child from Eve's own body eventually down the line who would redeem, restore, uh, make new. All of these things, okay? So then we've been watching this story of God, this child that was to come uh, throughout not just the Bible, but history. Remember, the Bible is a true book. It's a historical book. These are moments you can go back and fact check if you like and see, did these people exist? Did these things happen? So that's what we've been following along. We've come along through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. They all move uh, into Egypt and then become slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God sends Moses to deliver them. God delivers them, not Moses. Moses is just a spokesperson. God delivers his people out miraculous, powerful ways, including plagues and splitting the sea in half, and then leads them to this mountain where he comes and speaks to them and meets them and gives them his word, okay? Literally, his written word, he gives it to them through Moses there, but he also speaks to them, all right? And we've talked about all of that. We've already come through all of that. So they, from there, turn and they go into the promised land that God promised to them, the the land that God promised to Abraham centuries beforehand. He's delivered them out, not to leave them alone, but to, to take them, return them to their home. So he brings them back to this land, this promised land. And when they get there, do you know what happens? They see that the land is occupied by powerful people, And they freak out and they think, how are we ever going to do this? And they turn around and they go, uh, or excuse me, they turn into God's face and say, you brought us out here to die. You brought us, you tricked us, blah, blah. So God says, fine, if you don't have faith in me at this point, after I've split a sea and done all these other things, you can wander by yourselves in the wilderness and I'll bring your children back and give it to them because they'll believe me since you won't. And then they try to go and get, oh, um, our bad. And then they try, but too late. So many of them end up dying, and as a result, they wander into the wilderness for uh, what turns into 40 years. So where we're landing today to look is towards the end of that 40-year time period. This is the moment when they're starting to now turn around and come back towards the promised land. All right. Now, if you you want to know what all happened during all that time or during a lot of that, you can go read that. We just jumped a whole bunch of books. That's okay. Uh, The good part is it's God's word, not David's. So you can go read it for yourself anytime you feel like it. So go to Numbers um, 21. So towards the back of the book there, Numbers chapter 21. I walked up here without my glasses, but I'm going to see what I can do with it. Numbers 21 and uh, verse 7. I'll read a couple of verses here. Verse 7 says, And the people came to Moses and said, 
We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he'll take away the serpents from us. And you'll know what they're talking about here in a second. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Lord, your word is awesome. I pray today that it does what it always does, which is change our lives. God, change our lives. Let it be something that we walk out of here. It may be a radical change. It may be a small change. It may just put something in our brain today. Uh, but, but that no matter what, that when we walk out of here, that something about your word has impacted us today. God, it's your word, not mine. I say that every week. I will always say that. I don't want it. To be what I have to say, I always want it to be what you have to say. I know I have the privilege of holding a microphone, but it's your word, your word, not mine. And I say this in Jesus' name, amen. So, I have lived, I live here obviously now, but I have lived in Georgia, Texas, and Tennessee. And they have rattlesnakes, but I've never seen a rattlesnake until I moved to Arizona. And the funny thing is that I feel like that's the only snake people in Arizona talk about, ever. Uh, I know there's others here, but that's what you, especially down here in the valley, that's what you, only thing you ever hear about. Now, since then, I've seen four in four years, uh, most of them on South Mountain. And uh, one time, actually twice now, I would have stepped on them if they hadn't rattled. Which, side note, if you're a hiker, don't wear headphones. Um uh, so I, I literally was my first thought. Had I not heard the rattle, for sure one of them, I would have stepped right on it, and it was gigantic. Um, and if I had been bitten, I would have been in some serious, serious trouble. Because both of the times that I was hiking and nearly stepped on them, I was way back into South Mountain. I was by myself, and I had no form of medical aid whatsoever. And you may or may not know, I'm pretty sure everybody does, but rattlesnake bites typically are lethal. In fact, uh, the clock starts ticking as soon as you get bit. Depending on the dose of venom, it could be minutes or it could be days. But if you don't do something about it, it's going to kill you. Uh, The venom actually damages your circulatory system and destroys tissue at the same time. So it, in essence, causes you in a lot of ways to bleed internally. It's a vicious thing. You want to see something horrific, Google a rattlesnake bite. Uh, But anyway, you need to go to a hospital. And you need anti-venom, like in a big way. And the same venom that comes out of the rattlesnake that would be in you killing you, they take that and they inject it into an animal. It doesn't hurt the animal. They tiny doses. But it triggers immune system in that animal, and they're able to harvest uh, proteins and things out of there that provide a greater dose uh, that they could put back into you and help your body to defeat or stop the poison that's going through you. However, the longer you take, the less likely that it's going to be effective. So it's a very serious thing. So in a strange way, it comes down to faith. In a strange way. How certain are you that you're going to die? Oh, I'm just going to walk it off. You know? How certain are you are you going to die? How much or how fast are you willing to respond? Like, are you going to take care of this quickly? And then, are you really going to trust the same venom that's pouring through your veins, killing you, to provide some form of solution to the bite? 
in order to be saved. And that's kind of similar to what we're looking at today. I always give you kind of a one sentence, one thought. It's on the sheets back there, but today is this. Though our sin is lethal, God has provided salvation from death if by faith we look to Christ's death on the cross as our hope. So, quick little thing on Numbers. Numbers is written by Moses. It's literally, the title in Hebrew is In the Wilderness. Uh, The English translators changed it to Numbers because there's long lists of genealogies and things in there but it literally is called in the wilderness the first 19 chapters of the book deal with the first two years when they come out of egypt all right the last half of the book from chapter 20 to the end is all the last year before they go back so you literally have decades erased no record of what occurred in those decades it literally is a wandering and in the wilderness. So look at chapter 21, look at verse 4. It says, from Mount Hor, so we're talking about these Israelites as they've been wandering now. This again is towards the end of that time. Uh, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around or avoid the land of Edom. Edom is named after its founder, which was Esau. Esau is Jacob's brother. They were estranged. We already talked about that story. So these descendants of Edom, of Esau, Edom, probably don't like the descendants of Jacob very well. In fact, we know they don't. But the people became impatient, it says. Literally, it says their souls grew short. That's such a more powerful way to think about it. Their souls grew short of waiting on the way. Now, just to clarify, wilderness in the Bible is not a forest. Wilderness is desert. And we know all about that here. But the Sinai Desert's a whole nother thing. I got a couple of snapshots of it. If you got, these are just, I just pulled them, but these are the Sinai Desert. So these would be the couple of areas that they would be wandering in. Millions of people with their animals. So you can imagine what life would have been like for them. So before we throw too many stones, imagine 40 years of wandering around in that, hearing stories about how God's going to deliver you. Um, They were going around Edom. I got a quick map on that just so you get a visual for it. So they were coming up from the south. You can see down there where Midian is. That's the top of the Red Sea. And they were coming up around it. And you can see where Edom is in there. So they're having to go all the way around. So instead of being able to just shoot up towards where the word Egypt is, come up from the south right there, they're going all the way around. And you can look up in chapter 20. tells you why they were going around. I'm not going to go back into that. But you can read and find out. Either way, they're going around. But note that everything that's fixing to follow, everything that's fixing to follow in this account is happening because of impatience. Not just tapping the toe impatience. Like it's been 40 years. People have died. My wife has died. My grandfather has died. My husband's died. I don't know. People have died out here in the wilderness. And so many, in fact, that they're sick of it. To their soul, it says. Sick of it to their soul. You been there before? Like impatient to the point that you can't stand it. Why are you smiling? Molly's over here. She knows. Some of us wrestle with it more than others. Your impatience. You know, you been there though? You ever made decisions based on, or excuse me, you ever made decisions when you're already at that stage of impatience? Dangerous, right? Really dangerous when you get to that stage. But this impatience here is with God. 
and their spiritual leader, Moses. Look what it says, verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you, collective, the both of them, God and Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food. The word food there is literally bread. There's no bread and no water. And we, again, our souls, loathe this worthless food or bread, this worthless bread. We loathe it. Worthless food. What worthless bread are they talking about? Manna, right? It's manna. It was given freely and miraculously by God from heaven for making this kind of bread cake type thing. We're not sure what it is. You can research it if you want. But they're saying, in essence, we're sick of your bread. I mean, just think about that a minute. We're sick of your bread. In fact, they're saying our souls loathe it. In other words, we're sick to death of your bread, God. This isn't the first time they complained. Decades prior to this, when they first turned back into the wilderness, they got sick of it quick. In Numbers chapter 11, uh, you can read the whole part there, but I'll read you a piece of it in verse 5. It says, now this is again decades before. It says, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt. That cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now... Our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. In other words, this Dave's language, this stinking manna, again, is all we got. It's funny how they forget the whole story, isn't it? They said it cost nothing. What did it cost in Egypt? Freedom. They were slaves. They were slaves. It cost everything. Back in chapter 21, where we're at. Notice their complaint here. It gets exaggerated. The core of the frustration is impatience, right? That's the core. It's, frust- it's impatience. But then that swells. Oh, oh, oh. And, and again, we have this consistent water problem. Where is water? Like they're talking about there's no flowing water. You know, where's a lake? Where's a river? Where's something to drink? We have no water again. God, Moses. On and on we go with this whole no water thing. Where did they get water from already once, at least? A rock. We already talked about that last week. But yet, you know, oh, oh, oh. and while we're at it, we're sick of eating this same stinking bread all the time. Impatience is spurring. You see what I'm saying? It's like rolling downhill. Don't we do that? Get wore out over something and then blow it up into everything. You know, this, this, this one area is driving me crazy, and now everything makes me crazy. I hate the whole world right now. Just leave me alone. You know? But they blow this up into an accusation. You, you brought us here to die. And they qualify that by comparison. We had it so good in Egypt. You brought us here to die. We had it so good in Egypt. Compared to, compared to here, it was great back in Egypt. Wow, I know we do that one. Well, I'm going to speak for myself. I know I do that one. We love to point the finger. Many times when it has nothing to do with the actual source of the problem, you know, we forget we've been. You know, what we've been through together, if you're in a relationship, a lot of times you forget all the things that you've already been through together, all the victories that you've already gone through together. You forget all those things and you start to blame when things get hard. You know, when it's going great, it's fine. But when it's hard, it's your fault. 
You didn't do this. You didn't do that. You never do this. You don't want me to be happy. Whatever it is, on and on. Or what's worse is when we're trying to follow the Lord, and it means isolation or struggle or perhaps it means persecution of some kind. And then we start to think back on the good times. Man, I used to remember getting high, and it was so nice just to go home and get stoned or go out for a ride. Or I used to love getting really good and get out there on the lake and drink about 20 beers and just get getting drunk and chill and blah, blah. And, or you think about the sex or you think about the money. Oh, I used to make so much money, and I used to whatever. But you forget the slavery that came with it. You forget the puking. You forget the headaches. You forget the body aches. You forget the loneliness. You forget the fighting. You forget the fear. You forget the exhaustion. You forget the climb and the chase to be on top all the time. And all. You forget all of that. Make no mistake here, by the way. God did not make them leave Egypt. He provided freedom. They were rescued from Egypt. He did not make them leave Egypt, but they turned that into something God forced them to do, as though God kidnapped them in order to torture them. You know, it, they're in essence, what are they doing? In essence here, they're calling God wicked, evil, wrong for what he's doing. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord sent, not from the devil, not from any demons, the Lord sent Fiery serpents. Now, the word fiery there, I'm not going to take the time to go into it. There's some debate to this, but most people would agree, and I am pretty set on the fact that this is a reference to poisonous snakes. It burns your veins type thing, okay? Fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many great abounding numbers of people of Israel died. So he sent them for the purpose of executing judgment on them, death. Fiery serpents. Listen to me, and I'm going to say this first. There's great grace in this story, but at the same time, don't ever mistake God for a hippie and sin for, like, no big deal. Don't ever mistake Jesus as some long-haired hippie in sandals that's cool with peace, love, and happiness and anything else you want to do that makes you feel good. And don't assume sin is no big deal. Not the case. In this sense, this is a plague on his own people. On his own people. And a great many die. Look at verse 7. And the people came to Moses and they said, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. And pray to the Lord that he'll take these serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. He interceded for them. Notice repentance here comes before the relief. When they confess to both of those whom they've sinned against. God and the, and the person they've sinned against. And they ask their intercessor here, Moses, to go seek God's forgiveness. And I'm, I may say some things here. You're going to have to be patient with me for saying it, but it's the time to say it. So in the Catholic faith, uh, there's a lot of, quote, intercessors. That's the whole praying to saints thing. In the Bible, there is only one intercessor for us, period. Only one intercessor for us. First Timothy 2 verse 5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus. That's it. 
John 14, 13. Jesus himself said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified. Jesus didn't say whatever you ask in my mother's name. Just saying it. Didn't say that. So whatever you ask in my name, uh, I will be glorified. The Father will be glorified as I answer it. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, which, by the way, I'm sorry, which, by the way, Moses in this role is pointing to Christ. You've already heard me say that before, but let me make that reminder. Moses in this role is pointing to Christ as that mediator. Okay, verse 8, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Odd prescription. Odd prescription. You know, uh, the pole there, the word pole is banner or standard. It would be like a, a flag on a pole that, that uh, uh, a military unit would set up on a hill in order to gather the military forces around the hill because the commander was going to make a speech. Or perhaps it would be uh, an announcement in the village and they would have a raise a pole uh, on a pole on a hill and they would raise up a, a flag that would signal people to assemble for announcements or, or that kind of thing. Uh, when it says that word, they would look at the bronze serpent, that word is not the same as see. That word is like to gaze at, to give regard to something, to, to even to rest your hope in it. It's, it's like saying, I'm looking to this as hope. It was an intentional act of focusing your attention on something. Suppose there's a way to be healed. You're bit by that rattlesnake. There's a way to be healed. Your veins are rotting from the inside, exploding blood into your body. Uh, you are ready to die, and there's a way to be healed. All you got to do, crawl out of bed, uh, crawl through town if that's the way you got to do it, limp, whatever you got to do, get somebody to help carry you, whatever you've got to do to get across town where there's still other snakes out, and get to this hill where you can look on that hill at a pole with a bronze snake on it. Let's just be honest how many people are doing that. You don't have to raise your hand. I, I already know. That's just crazy. Why not stay home and stay in bed? Why not? You know, there's got to be some home remedy here. There's got to be a scientific medical answer for how to better handle this. It's, it's ridiculous to believe that looking at that. You see what it's doing? It's taking faith. It's taking faith. The very thing that they were doubtful with the whole time is taking faith. People do the same approach today. It's ridiculous to look at a dead man on a cross, a dead Jewish naked man beat to pieces on a cross, and expect that's going to save you from death. That's ridiculous. Science will. They'll figure it out eventually. Or logic will. Or medicine will. Or aliens will. Eventually come give us the answer to death. But looking at a, a dead man on a cross, that's, that's ridiculous. Unless you see him. Unless you see him. But in fact, this whole scene, the entire scene, it's not about an idol here. It's not about this miraculous object. The whole scene is entirely for the purpose of pointing people to the cross. Eventually. 
14, don't miss this, 1,400 years beforehand. This is 1,400 years before Jesus will show up. Remember, this is the story of God, not Moses. It's not a blueprint for your life. It's not the Bible. is God's story, the story of him revealing himself to you. So here we have 1,400 years ahead of time. This is not some random, hey, I'll tell you what, why don't you get a pole and put a serpent on it? It's all to point to the cross, to point to Christ. The fiery serpents here, they represent sin, poison, a poison that invades the body, that invades your bloodstream, that uh, begin, brings certain death. That's the same thing sin does. It invades your body. Your, your very blood, the core of your life becomes death as a result of sin, takes life. The bronze serpent, the image here of sin, the image of justice, the image of uh, punishment. Jesus became sin for us. Jesus took God's judgment on that cross. The wrath of God was on that cross. The pole, the banner, obviously the cross itself. It was put on a hill so it could be seen. That's what you do with a banner. So Christ was crucified on a hill where he was seen by all. Seeing it. It was an act of faith. You had to go. You couldn't just look out your window. You had to go find, go to the foot of this object and see it. Same thing. You have to look to the cross for salvation. It doesn't automatically apply to you. You have to look to the cross by faith. And life as a result of it. Salvation. Life. Life from certain death. You are going to die. But a miracle happens and you escape the grave. You escape the grave. Romans 6.23, many of you know it. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, John 11.25, Jesus says this. I love these words. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And... Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Great finish to this. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Now you may think I'm stretching to get the comparison here, but Jesus said it himself. In John chapter 3, in verse 14, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus himself made the comparison. He's saying that snake 1,400 years ago on on that pole was a picture of me. Jesus is saying it himself, that whoever looked at the pole would be saved from death. Whoever will look at me will be saved from death. In fact, that is... The passage and the verses most famous in the Bible, that was John, 13, or John 14 and 15, what's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We Most of us know that verse, but then he goes on, he says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but who does not believe in him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's Jesus talking. Jesus is saying, we've all, the snakes have bit everybody. 
I didn't come here to condemn you. The snakes, you're condemned. You already got the blood, you got the poison in your vein. I didn't come here to condemn you. I came here to be the snake on the pole. I came here to save. I came here to save for everyone who believes, for those who will call, who believe what I'm saying and come and look at the pole, look at me on the cross. For those who realize they're bitten by sin and recognize death, the cross becomes this banner of grace. And there's no works involved in finding that life. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to be good enough first. You don't have to clean up and take a bath. You don't have to do any of that. You don't have to get anything fixed. You just come look at the cross. You just come look at the cross. And again, as we're going to kind of twist to a finish here, before, you know, again, the bronze serpent that we're talking about here was only to point to Christ. It was not an object to be seen as something to be worshipped, but it became one. It became one. In fact, uh, centuries later, after this point back in, in the camp there, centuries later, when Hezekiah becomes king, he destroys it. It's, stu- it's stuck around for centuries. In Second Kings 18, verse 4, it says, And he, King Hezekiah, removed all the high places. This is when he's coming through and he's getting rid of idol worship. And he broke pillars and he cut down Asherah. Asherah were totem poles, like that kind of thing. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan, which means bronze serpent in Hebrew. They turned this thing into an object of worship. We can do this too. Make icons out of things. You know, consider the cross itself. Now, I'm, I'm treading lightly. Believe me, I'm treading lightly. But just consider the cross itself. In the beginning, what was the symbol for Christianity in the start? Do you know? Still see it on cars sometimes. A fish. Yeah, a fish. And then it was a Cairo for a while. I'll, you can go look that up and see what that is if you don't know. But the cross ultimately found its place as the symbol of Christianity. And in a lot of ways, it's because it was the beloved place where the blood was spilled. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's great. I'm not saying that it's wrong. But the problem is that over time, that cross became a banner like a flag of a nation. And it turned into something we're going to wars over. And we're going to fight and kill and murder and do whatever else in the name of that cross. Almost like we forgot the person that was on it. Suddenly it was the emblem of the cross itself. The crucifix came along to differentiate between Catholic and Protestant. And the crucifix has the object of a man back on the cross in this case. And people would look at that. Madonna, disgusting as it is, once said that she wore crucifixes all the time because they had a naked man on it. But people began to worship a crucifix because they will go kiss it and touch it and put their hands on the feet and all kinds of different ways of looking and honoring this object. And to this day, and again, we all do it in different ways, but to this day, Catholicism has, especially Roman Catholicism, has tons of icons. I've seen a lot of them myself. Especially if you go to Jerusalem, they're all over the place in Jerusalem. Icons. Here's uh, a piece. Here's a, a thread from Peter's sandal. People laying down all around it. Uh, you can go find even the rock where they believe 
that Jesus sweat drops of blood. There's a whole church built over it. And in the center of the room is an exposed piece of ground where there's rock. And they believe there's drops of sweat blood there from Jesus. And when I was there, they're literally priest-looking people laid prostrate on their whole face and body in this big circle around the thing. You know? I'm not going to judge who they're praying to. My point is that the issue has become these things have become objects of worship. It was never about the thing. It was about who it pointed to. It was about who it pointed to. Seeing the serpent was seeing the agent of death. If you were bitten by one, death was imminent. But by turning in faith and seeing the image on the pole, he found life. We all face the agent of death, guys, all of us. We're all bitten by sin. I don't care whether you believe it or not. I'm telling you right now, just don't die and prove me wrong. Just just live forever, and, and I'll admit I was wrong. But we all die because we're all bit. Death is imminent, but by turning in faith and looking at Christ on the cross, who became sin for us and died the death that we deserve, we find life. Now, one other note here, by the way, dying on a cross was no great victory. Uh, and I'm, again, treading lightly, dying on a cross was no great victory. Who else died on a cross? Huh? Thieves. Two thieves died right beside him on a cross. One of them mocking him all the way to his death. In fact, millions, perhaps, over centuries died on crosses. Uh, taking the sins of the world upon yourself, only God can do that. Only God can do that. Conquering the grave, only God can do that. Only God can do that. You don't get life without that. The cross is only part of it. If there ever should be a symbol, and I don't know what it looks like, but if there ever should be a symbol for Christianity, it should be an empty grave in some way, shape, or form. So what do we do with this? Well, if you're a Christian in the room, my first question is, can you communicate the gospel? Because this is, this is the gospel, about as good as it gets, an amazing picture of it. Can you communicate the gospel? If you can't, maybe you need to take a little bit of time and let us think in. What's the good news? What, the good news is Jesus Christ. It is the cross. It is that he's alive. It is that he paid for our sins. But it doesn't have any weight if you don't know you've been bitten by a snake. If you don't know you're dying, it's not that great a news. It's just a good thing that happened. If you are a Christian, be careful with impatience. Gets out of control and it's bad. Bad. Be careful with the good old days. Be careful with the good old days because then you tend to turn your back on God today. Or in most cases, the good old days are nowhere close to as good as you remember them being. You just remember the good parts of the good old days. Uh, And then be careful with gratitude. God saved you. Already. Be careful with not expressing gratitude for what God's done in your life rather than frustration for what he hadn't done in your life. Stand up with me and we're going to close out. And uh, um, 
singing one more song here and then we'll call it done. And, and uh, if you don't mind, close your eyes for a minute. And again, I'm, I'm not being dramatic. I'm not trying to be uh, weird or odd or hide anything from you. I, mine are close too. I want you to focus a minute on what's been talked about, on God's word, not me, on God's word. And just take a second and think. The gospel is so clear in this passage. Christ is the hope of sinners. Jesus is the hope of sinners. Jesus is the one who died. The question is, are you a sinner? Can you recognize you got poison in your veins? Do you feel the weight of death? Do you feel the weight of no answer? God made a way. God made a way. He set a standard on a hill 2,000 years ago. For these people, it was 14 years ahead of them. It's 2,000 years behind us. But it's on a hill that all of history points to and all of history is reconciled to. A hill where God himself came, all man, all God, to take on the weight of the sin of the world and nail it to a cross on his own body. Again, that only being part of it, that he got out of a grave, that he conquered death, a grave that could have never held him. He created all things, had no chance. But for us, we have no escape unless we recognize that we're bitten and we look at that cross, unless we recognize our sin and we look at that cross. Can you do that today? Can you admit who you are? I'm a sinner. You don't have to tell me. I know. I know I've been bit. I know I mess up. Can you admit who you are? Can you believe in who he is? Look, I don't, I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but I'm trusting that he is who he says he is. I'm trusting that the cross was enough. I'm trusting that the grave is empty. Can you do that? And can you trust that what he accomplished is enough, that you'll never be a good enough, that nothing you ever do is going to be good enough, but that what he did is good enough? God is pleased with you because of what Christ has done. Can you say that? If you can, tell him your own words, however you want from your heart. You don't have to repeat anything after me. You tell him. He knows what you got to say. Lord, I love you. I praise your name. You are awesome. Thank you for your word today. I pray today that if anybody has given their life to you for the first time, God, that they wouldn't walk out of here without telling somebody. You're awesome. I love you. Ask all these things for Christ's name. Amen.